Today we return to the book of Philippians. Uh, this will be our last in our journey through this little epistle. This has been a fun one. I, Philippians is probably a favorite to, to many of us. It's hard not to like the book. Because Paul is writing to this church that he has a good relationship with. He's not fussing at them. <laughs> He's not having to rake them over the coals. But he is teaching them. And he takes the opportunity as he pens this letter to remember the fondness that they have for him. But also to teach them how to be Christians in their own context. So we remember that these Philippians were Gentile by birth. They were new. They were different. They weren't your normal Jewish church at the time. They weren't a synagogue. So they probably didn't worship in the same way that Paul had worshipped in his childhood. But that was okay. For they had the Holy Spirit that had guided them through the gospel that Paul had shared. And so we return now to the fourth chapter, the last chapter of this little letter. And let me give you the conflict, or the context of this one. So this chapter opens up. Paul is addressing a conflict between two women. This Eudia, however you say that, and Seneca. It's interesting. They are named. Why do you suppose... Paul addresses two women in conflict. Now, many of us, as we read this, was like, ah, oh, that's just two women fighting. That happens all the time. And so we move on. But Paul didn't waste words in his letters. He didn't just go about naming people unless he needed to, to name them, either addressing who he was writing to or who was writing the letter with them or for some reason or the other, or to uplift other people in the church so that they may listen to them. But he calls out these two ladies in particular. These could have been some of the founding ladies of the church. We know that Lydia is the first convert there in Philippi. These could have been two of the pillars of their community. Think about that. These weren't men here. This was a different kind of church. This was a church in a different area. And there were these two leading women that had a disagreement. Baptists know about disagreement, don't we? You get three Baptists in a room, you got about eight opinions. And so Paul is first urging them that they come to a unity of mind to, to let their differences go. But he also is calling out another to kind of mediate the problem. That is something we can learn. A lot of times we have problems, but we don't seek out help in negotiating the situation. When you're mad at somebody, think about it this way. When you're mad at somebody, you work up all these little things in your mind that this person has done to you. You dwell on all these little details. And you just get angrier and angrier to the point you just don't even want to speak to them anymore. Who's ever done that? I don't see many hands. Y'all are really good people. There's a couple out there. But we do this. When we're angry at somebody, we dwell on the little things. Have you ever noticed that person that you were angry with? It could have been a friend, a family member. It could have happened over the Thanksgiving holidays because we know when we get families together, there's always a disagreement, it seems like. But when you actually confront them about what you're angry about, how many times does that person is completely oblivious to your anger? It happens a lot. 
probably more than we care to admit. But a lot of times we are angry at people and they have no idea that we are. And we have been dwelling on this situation for days, weeks, months, years for some people. And so Paul says, you see this mediator. Let him help you work it out. Because when we have a neutral ground, we can talk about things in ways when our defenses can come down. And Paul says, this is important. He says, we need to keep this battles out of the life of the church. And then he reminds them about the book of life. He says, these arguments that we have now in this place, in this community, think about them in the perspective of eternity. Is what you are arguing over so important that you neglect your eternal perspective? And then on the other side of our scripture for today, Paul thanks the Philippians for the gift that they have seen, sent. Or did he? Do y'all remember reading this? It starts there, uh, verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received or revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He kind of thanked them, but then he said, "Eh, if you did or you didn't, I'm still okay. Isn't that the strangest thank you you could get? But Paul is writing to a Gentile group, a pagan group. And he has learned something that he wants to share in this thank you. But he also wants to set the situation in the correct position. Paul is not a patron of the church at Philippi, is he? No. He is a missionary led by the Spirit. And the Spirit led him to the Philippians at one point. And out of their abundance, they have shared with him over his journey. But he wants to make one thing clear that with or without them, God's will would be done. But he is thankful for their partnership. Partnership is important here. He owes them nothing. He wants to make sure that they understand that he is not writing them this letter because he owes it to them. Because they are both partners, doing what they can. Paul is being an evangelist, a missionary, going into places where they cannot go getting into trouble that they did not get into. They are his partners, and they were able to share. They weren't able to share all the things that they wanted to because they were prevented. But it says their concern was revived, and they share. But there is an important lesson that he is teaching him in this thank you or not. We're still thinking about that one. Is that he has learned to be content In every circumstance, whether he was rich or poor, hungry or well-fed. Verse 13 holds the key, doesn't it? It is this. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, in this church, in this Gentile world, 
the Stoics had this philosophy of learning to be content, of not letting life get in your way, of dwelling on anxiety. But they had uplifted the human spirit of elevating themselves above the situation. Paul says, I haven't learned to elevate myself above the situation. He said, on the contrary, I've learned I can be content because Christ dwells in me. He says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't about winning a football game or a basketball game, soccer or volleyball. That's how I've heard that verse preached over and over again. It's about doing all things through Christ can strengthen me. Now go out and take the field and win this game. It's not what it's talking about. It is talking about letting Christ dwell in you, live in you, and to bring you a confidence that this world cannot offer on its own. That is what Paul has learned to do. And so now let's look at the verses for today. So chapter 4, starting in verse 4, and we will read through verse 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that great? So Paul is teaching them how to achieve this Stoic ideal, which was so important in that Greco-Roman world. Did you catch the instructions? Did you hear them? It starts simply with this. Rejoice and be glad. Be thankful for what the Lord has done. In whatever situation you find yourself in, be thankful. But we know there are trials in our life that it just is hard to be thankful There are some thanksgivings where it's just hard to remember a reason to be thankful for this year. And there's some years that we're thankful for about everything that has happened to us. New babies are are born and brought in. You know, all these things. And so, how do you learn to be rejoiceful when you were being persecuted, when you were hungry, when you were in want? This is the first key. So pray. In everything, pray with supplications, with thanksgiving. Make your requests be known to God. If you neglect the habit of prayer, you will never be able to achieve these goals of being content in all circumstances. You will never be charged with the Spirit in your life to be able to say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Prayer is the key to all of this. It is the key to living a Christian life. So he says, pray. Supplications. Let your request be known from God. If you're having a bad day, give it to God. If you're having a good day, 
give it to God. If you're having a mediocre day or a blah day, give it to God. The habit is giving your day to God every day in the morning when you wake up. Give it to God. And those days will be good days. No matter if you find out the results of a test from the doctor, whether good or bad, those days will be good. We can rejoice in those days because we serve a God who is greater than this world. We serve the God of eternity. But the first step in learning to live a life of contentment is to pray. And why do we pray? Because we have a God who listens and who cares for each and every one of us. These pagans did not have gods that way. That they could pray and they would go on like Jesus says, babbling all these names, this nonsense. And what they do is they would try to name every God that they could think of. Hoping that one may be listening to their prayer. But I'm not sure how that works because... You know, if you're a God up there on Mount Olympus or wherever you're at, and you're looking down, and you actually notice this guy praying to all these different gods, and then your name comes up about 30th in the list of 100, do you think that makes you feel good about yourself? No. They had a silly way of doing it. But Paul says it's through the gospel that you've learned the truth. And it is the truth that a God loves you and cares about you and wants a relationship with you. Is why you can rejoice and to be thankful. And the results of this prayer, of this giving it up to God, is this. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Hearts and your mind. Your wants and your thinking. That's important. What do you think about every day? Let's ask. Do you think good thoughts? Do you think bad thoughts? Do you think evil thoughts? Do you think moral thoughts? How do you control what you think about? Does a TV influence your thoughts? Does it influence your buying habits? These infomercials, these commercials, do they influence what you do on a daily basis? Do they influence what car you drive? What clothes you wear? What guides your thoughts? Well, if we start with God, then He will. He will guard us. He will keep us safe. There's an old saying, especially if you ever learned programming back in the early days of computers. This Gigo, you remember Gigo? Garbage in, garbage out. It's true. It's true about computers. It's true about us. If we fill up on garbage... Garbage is the net result of what's going to come out. If we input garbage into our thinking patterns, that is what will control our thoughts. But Paul says first, pray to God. Think about these things, and he will guard you. If you put God first, above the garbage in your life, the results of God, this contentment that Paul had found in all situations will come through. It says... Think about these things. We think about this earthly perspective. We think about these virtues that Paul lists. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what we are to dwell on. This is what we are to spend our time on. So what is true? You know, truth used to be an understanding. There were some things that were true and some things that are false. In our culture today, there's really no such thing as truth anymore, is it? It's all subjective. People have their own truths, their own paths of enlightenment. What's true for you may not be true for me. This is the kind of thinking our culture tells us. But there is a truth. There is the Word of God. It is the ultimate truth. It is a revelation of Christ, of God, to humanity. If we have any other truth implanted into our thinking, we are being led astray. For in a world where everything is subjective... Nothing is reality, is it? So Paul teaches these Philippians to think on what is true. He's talking about the gospel and the history of their faith. This is what is true. It was not those gods that they learned about in their elementary schools or teachings or any of that stuff. Or in the towns and all these shrines. Truth comes from the Word of God. It is what He has shared with them. It is what they have learned. It is truth of God revealed to humanity. That is the only truth that we can reflect on. If we are filling our minds with these other truths that our worlds will happily supply, we are not thinking the things of God. Also, he says, whatever is honorable... Honor. (laughs) That is something our culture doesn't praise anymore, does it? Oh, we like honorable people. We like telling stories about honorable soldiers, honorable men, honorable women. But it is truly not a prized virtue in our society anymore, is it? No, it's about doing what's best for me, getting ahead. It's entitlements, all these things. We don't think about honor. But honor is a qualification for a leader, especially within the church of God. If we neglect what is honorable, we neglect what is true. For when we look for leaders and pastors and deacons, we look for people who are honorable, not perfect. If we look for perfect people, we'd never find them. We'd have no leaders in a church. But we look for people who strive to be honorable. That they do what they say they'll do. That if they see you in need, that they will help. People who will walk 10 miles to return that change that you gave them wrong at the store. You know, these kind of people. Our country is full of honorable men. But being honorable is not enough by itself. For the honor has to be based in the truth. The truth of the gospel. He says whatever is pure. Whatever is moral. Whatever is right. Whatever is just. Paul says think of these things. A lot of times we don't go home and just dwell on what is the right thing for me to do today. 
You know, we try not to be legalists, these Pharisees, these fundamentalists. We don't just think about the right and the wrong. But we need to concern ourselves with pure, holy living. If we corrupt our bodies, we corrupt our minds. If we look at things that we shouldn't, we corrupt our thinking. For we have to strive after what is pure and holy and honorable and true. Paul says, think of these things. He also says, whatever is lovely, whatever is generous, patient. Lovely is kind of subjective, too. What appeals to your eye? What makes you feel good about yourself? It can be in the landscape. That purpose, West Texas sunset. How the colors just dance across the sky. How it looked like God hand-painted those hues himself. That is lovely. Maybe it is the haze over a mountaintop. That is lovely. Maybe it is in a coo of a newborn baby. That is lovely. But Paul says, think of those things that are lovely. And when he says, think of those things, he says, think of those people who are lovely. There are people that you just like to be around. Because they make you feel better about yourself. Think of these people. These are the kind of people you want to be. You don't want people to see you from across the room and decide, well, am I going to make eye contact? Because if I do, I've got to talk to them. Or am I going to try to slip out that door real quick? We don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be the kind of people that folks like to say, good morning, hello, how was your week? And they actually want to hear about it. Think of what is lovely. What is commendable? What is good? What is good for others? It says, think about these things. Do we think about what's good for other people all the time? No, sometimes we want to do it a little bit here, a little bit there, but usually we think about ourselves. But Paul says, think about others. What is commendable? Think about excellence, worthy of praise. What do we think that are praiseworthy? Winning a football game, NASCAR race, trophy buck, big piles of cotton out in the field. Those are excellent, and they are worthy of praise, but is that what Paul is talking about? No, he thinks from a kingdom perspective. He thinks of those who have heard the witness, accepted the gospel, and have been converted. He thinks about these things. Those are the excellent ways. Those who went through a trial in their life and whose faith did not falter. These are the excellent things Paul is talking about. The things of this world pale in comparison to the glory of God. Think on these things. And then what does it say? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. 
So it's not just about the teachings. It's not just about the knowledge. It's not about the sermons. But it's also about what you have seen in me. He says, look at my example that I have given you. Do you want to tell others, hey, you know what we taught in Sunday school, listen to that. You know what that preacher said, you know, what you heard in church, listen to those things. But also the way you see me live my life. Think about these things. That's what Paul did. He wasn't perfect. I have an um, idea that he probably had a little bit of a temper, the way he writes some of his letters. I bet you he snapped off a person a time or two and had regrets on those. But he says, look at me. He said, I have now learned. He said, I've made mistakes in my past. Just look at me before I met Christ. He said, I was zealous for the faith. He said, I was disciplined. I did the law backwards and forwards. You couldn't find fault in anything I did. I did all the special services, all this kind of stuff. I did it. I was so jealous or zealous for our faith that I even persecuted the church. And then Jesus got in my way. He blinded him, literally blinded him on that road. That bright light. Scales over his eyes. He had to sit in darkness until a member of the way, one of those early Christians, came and prayed for Paul. And Paul received the light. No longer did he sit in darkness, but he was now transformed to be a missionary to those very people he was hunting down. Isn't that something? But it's not just what you've learned or received or heard or seen in the example of one of these saints. He said, practice these things. It's what our children taught us. How do you get better at something? You practice. Say doctors and lawyers practice their craft because they know they will never reach perfection. But if they continue to study if they continue to listen to others who have more experience, and they continue to practice with their own hands, it will get better. And as Paul says, he has learned to be content because he has learned that he could do all things through Christ that strengthened him. But it is in the practicing what we learn that we can find the peace of God. It is how we grow in our faith. It is how we can weather those trials that come our way. And that's what this is all about. Is how do we live in this world that is full of evil, that is full of corruption, sickness, pain, death, church shootings, tragedies, all across this globe. How do we live in such a place as Christians? We practice what we were taught. Paul was sitting in places where people didn't like him, where he was stoned and shipwrecked, and even met church leaders who opposed him to his face, and who talked behind his back. But he learned to practice these things, and it was through practicing and following the will of God that he found God's peace that was with him. 
That is how he got through this world. By learning, by hearing, by following the example of those who are before you, but by doing it yourself. If you don't think you can share the gospel with someone because you haven't read your Bible from beginning to end, you're wrong. You learn more about Christ by teaching about Christ, by sharing about what Christ has done. It's the old thing where if you look for something, you will find it. If you have lost a treasure, you just sit there hoping that it will show up. No. As Jesus' example was, you sweep the house, you turn over every drawer, and eventually that which would be lost will be found. Jesus doesn't hide from you. He's there waiting and willing to open the door. All you have to do is knock. All you have to do is ask. And as Paul says, it starts with prayer and submission to the will of God. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, teach us to be thankful. Teach us to pray in everything, in all situations. Teach us to fill our days with the thoughts of heaven. Not that we can be these morally perfect people, but that we can learn what the true peace of God looks like in our lives. Lord, I ask today that you burden our hearts if we have not accepted you as our Lord and Savior. Please let today be the day that everything changes, that we turn over our selfish needs to your guidance because it is not the path of this world that we find contentment, but it is in the path of you as our Savior because you are willing to come into our lives and give us strength that we make it through all the trials and troubles of this world until the day that you come and return and make all things new and get rid of the corruption of sin and pain and death but until then we know that you promise to keep us as one of your treasured possessions It is in your name we pray. Amen.